This is episode 35 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we're finally going to talk more about peds. We're going to talk about babies and the NICU, and our guest today is Ramya Kumar. She is a certified SLP who specializes in the assessment and treatment of pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. She's been practicing in Phoenix, Arizona for the last four years in both pediatric and adult hospital settings. Ramya is passionate about creating mealtime success for her patients and families from the medically fragile NICU babies and beyond. She's committed to ongoing education and research in the field of pediatric feeding difficulties and has presented findings at the local and national forums, including ASHA's Health and Business Institute, as well as the Feeding Matters Conference. Ramia is currently pursuing board certification in swallowing disorders through the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders and coursework in lactation as well as orofacial myofunctional disorders in an effort to better serve her patients. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Happy April. Happy spring. Happy Easter. Happy Passover. Whatever you celebrate, enjoy it. Um, Glad to finally be somewhat settled in for moving. (laughs) I I actually don't have too many announcements for today, so that should probably just thrill all of you because I'm sure you just love hearing me flap my gums for the first few minutes of every episode. But um, So to everyone that's been wanting more peds and more NICU, we've got it for you today. Um, I just love Ramya. She's so sweet. She's so knowledgeable about NICU and she just tugs at my heartstrings because I had a NICU baby too and I just, I so wish I had someone like her that was taking care of my son. So um, I really just thoroughly enjoy this episode. Uh, Just want to let you guys know the show notes that she wrote for you guys are incredible. So if anybody is looking to get into the NICU or currently in the NICU, um, I think it's like four or five pages of show notes, but then there's like 10 different attachments. So lots of incredible info. You can get those right at uh, bit.ly bit.ly forward slash SYP podcast 035. Um, And don't forget, you can still text in too. You can text SYP035 to to download those show notes. And let's see, as always, grateful for our sponsors, grateful to EndoHD for keeping this thing going. You guys have been wonderful, so, so good to me. And also sponsored now by the Medical SLP Solution, a monthly membership site with resources and handouts, um, community support if you might need it. And Ramia is actually one of our moderators. So if you ever have any NICU questions or uh, questions about peds, Ramia is always willing to answer those questions too. And she's going to put together some some information for us also. And in the Medical SLP Solution this week, we're actually talking about um, peds and infant-driven feeding and Q-based feeding in the NICU. So if that interests you, head to medslpsolution.com and get signed up. And that's all the blab and I have for you guys today. So hopefully you enjoy this episode. Hi, Ramia. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for joining me and doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Of course. I know we, I've, I always get asked all the time when we're going to talk more about peds, more about peds, but then there's <laughs> always those, the special questions of, well, I'd love to work in the NICU someday. And it's like this, you know, 
I guess, secret language or something, you know, <laughs> no one, no one knows where to find any information about it. So thank you for agreeing to come on and tell us where to find the info. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's the new, like forensic science, so to speak, like, yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. everybody wants to be a forensic scientist after they watch a yes. TV show. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. All right. So, you know, I introduced you a little bit in the beginning, but if you can tell the people who you are. Sure. Um, I'm Ramya Kumar. I am a pediatric speech-language pathologist, um, or I guess a neonatal therapist is, again, another term that's being used more recently. Um, I practice at a hospital in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. It is a level three NICU. Um, I started my journey in, um, well, inpatient pediatric rehab in my fellowship, and then I continued my fellowship in outpatient rehab, um, working with NICU grads and uh, feeding difficulties. And then I've kind of cross-trained in the NICU, um, and now I'm full-time in the NICU. So cool. kind of journeyed through my way. Yeah. Did you, did you always want to work in the NICU with babies or, you know, was that your goal when you were in grad school? Nope. Um, I actually, (laughs) (laughs) I actually went to grad school fully thinking I was going to work with, um, adults and neuro stuff. My, um, my first master's, my previous background is in neuroscience. Um, so when I went, I was in, I worked in higher ed for a while and went back for a second career, um, and so I was like, yep, I'm just going to do aphasia and TBI. And then I was a peds magnet. And uh, how cool experience that came my way was pediatric. So I figured I should go with the path I'm being led on. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, and awesome. I just had excellent mentorship um, during the second part of my CFY. Uh, oh, cool. And one of my mentors was in the NICU. So that's kind of how I ended up with that. All right. Awesome. So I think we're going to answer the, you know, question we've heard a bajillion times over <laughs> today. How does someone even start to venture to decide they want to work in the NICU? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's like different angles you can take to this, but because um, I get asked that question a lot also. Um, I feel like what I typically tell people and what's worked for me. So, I mean, obviously you could start because you had a great fellowship there or you know, you landed, you just happened to have an acute care position and you got trained. Um, but I think what set, has set me up for success, and I tell students and clinical fellows, is starting in the outpatient setting. So um, a lot of hospital re- outpatient rehabs have kind of a NICU follow-up program, either formal or informal. Um, and I think starting there was great because it kind of gives you a safe environment. They're not like hooked to monitors and tubes and, you know, all these things. And they're a little bit definitely more stable. Um, and you also kind of have the value of time or the, the gift of time. So you can say, okay, like, you know, come back next week and you can research what, yeah. what you need <laughs> versus you know, yeah. having to know it in the moment. Um, so I think it is a great place to actually practice your skill set and be really comfortable. And that's the same, I think, with early intervention now as well. And a lot of places they are looking for more, um, more therapists that actually have knowledge base with these medically complex kids and NICU grads. Um, and I find that having had that experience for almost like maybe three, four years before I was doing full-time NICU, I feel like I can advocate better for my patients now in the NICU because I can, t- I can talk to neonatologists or I can talk to nurses and say, in outpatient long-term, this is what I've seen. 
Um, and so that started here in the NICU of how, whether how we, how we fed them or how we positioned them or what GI stuff we had. So I think it gives you more of a confidence um, level to actually do that advocating um, in a pretty cutthroat environment. Um, yeah, yeah. So I feel like, you That's know, obviously awesome. there's theory and knowledge base and all of that. Um, and, you know, we can we'll probably go into that at some point. Um, yeah. But I think that almost starting not in the NICU, but with that demographic sets you up for more success moving forward. That's, yeah, that's a great, that's a great tip. Yeah. All right. Um, so let's see, where do you want to start? Should we start with what, what Asha has to say? Sure. Um, I mean, I kind of like, you know, just pulled some ex- excerpts uh, from their scope of practice, which was awesome, is awesome that Asha has one specific to NICU yeah, therapists. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest point too is, um, you know, like often we feel like, like I'll hear the term, oh, you know, pediatrics is just little people, just adults, but little bodies. And no, it's completely different. And then we'll yeah. hear, oh, neonatal therapy is just pediatric therapy in the NICU, which is also very different. Um, so I think, you know, really identifying that difference is huge. Um, there's a lot that we have to know, not just about our discipline, but, um, just infant development, um, development of, um, like muscles and sensory systems and, you know, all kinds of things, but also a lot of family centered, um, care because the core of everything, um, is really creating that infant parent, um, bond and dyad because they parents are parenting in a very atypical environment. Um, they expect it to go home with their baby and they're not, and they're having to come in at certain times. Um, so I think a lot of that knowledge base is important. And Asha does talk about that. Um, they do talk about Asha and then AOTA, which is for OTs and then APTA for PTs. All of them talk about being in the NICU as an advanced clinical practice. Okay. Um, so I know in some areas because of maybe staffing needs or what, again, chance or whatever fell into your lap. Um, there are NICUs that have new grads or even fellows or um, clinicians with fewer years of experience, but it is technically um, an advanced level of practice. Um, and I think for those reasons that I mentioned. Um, so they do, I mean, if you look at the ASHA guidelines, there is a detailed list of all of the roles that NICU therapists have to play. Um, and I'll just say neonatal therapists, I get, um, I guess. And then it actually details what that scope looks like for each role. Um, everything from, again, the parenting concept, knowing about staffing in the NICU, which, which can be, it's, it's a tough environment to navigate. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, You know, yeah. the medical providers and nurses are very protective of their kids, you know, rightfully so. So again, yeah. having that confidence and knowledge base to navigate that um, yeah. and make your point. And then obviously all the medical things that are going on. Um, in that population. So really having, knowing all of that is key. Yeah. All right. I hope I'm answering your question. Of course. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I'll just say Ramia provided a really super detailed outline and a lot of notes for you guys to, so we're not going to go through Ash's whole scope of practice here, but um, you guys can download the show notes after the episode and read up on all of these if this is something that interests you. So yeah, and I did want to uh, point out, Teresa, I think I put it in the notes as well. Um, there is a national association for neonatal therapists that many m- people may or may not know. Um, it is called NANT, um, the National Association of Neonatal Therapists, and I believe the link will be in the notes. Um, and they also have a scope of practice document that spans across disciplines um, and really talks about what, ne- what neonatal therapy is, 
what a neonatal therapist is, what kind of um, knowledge base you need to have theoretically, but then also at, the, at a practice level. So that's a really great starting point as well for awareness. Okay. Is that for all, all disciplines? Mm-hmm. Is that OTPD speech? Yes. Okay, yeah. Cool. They actually um, pulled from all of those three organizations and then created okay. their scope of practice. Okay. So is that, so I'm guessing that's not just limited to feeding. It's just kind of more of a general. Okay. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause I know, um, you know, this episode's kind of raw for me cause my son was in the NICU for 15 days and it's something I wouldn't wish upon anyone, but, <laughs> um, I, I guess the biggest struggle for me was that they didn't have SLPs in the NICU mm-hmm. and it was an OT that worked with him and, I just, I, I don't, I'm trying to think how to say this tactfully, but I, I felt like I knew more about feeding and swallowing like than she did. Mm-hmm. And, and that was so frustrating. You know, I was like, we need an SLP up here. We need an SLP. And she's mm-hmm. like, no, OT does feeding mm-hmm. in the NICU. And I was like, what? So I guess, you know, for me, that was kind of, I didn't realize that I, I know in some parts of the country, OT, mm-hmm. OTs still do some part of feeding and mm-hmm. swallowing, but in the NICU, that just totally threw me for a loop. Yeah, they do. There are, like you said, there are definitely lots of states where that is the case. And it's actually sometimes in some states, even hard for SLPs to get in the NICU because it is very OT dominated. Um, I'm fortunate that I'm in a system where we have OTPT and speech and we kind of all work pretty collaboratively and together, but we kind of know our strengths and, you know, where one ends and the other starts, so to speak. I mean, it is, it's hard to fully define because we're actually all working on everything to some degree. Yeah. Um, yeah. But especially I think when it comes to like swallowing more than the actual, because there's feeding and there's swallowing, right? Right, right. I think it's, that's, that's where it gets cloudy because it is more than one component. Um, right. And that's kind of where my brain was at. You know, I was like, okay, cool. Yeah. You'll work on feeding, mm-hmm. you know, when is the SLP going to monitor swallowing, right. you know, like clearly my little guy is having trouble, mm-hmm. you know, why are we not concerned about this, you know, and, and just being yeah. told that, oh, he'll figure it out. Like that just didn't right. sit right with me. Yeah. And even just from so, the perspective of, um, instrumental, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have heard, I know, I think, I think we've all seen some of those posts, even in adult land where OTs are doing MBSs or something. Or whatever. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is in our scope of practice to do instrumentals. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, sorry. I think that was just a total yeah. random tangent, but. <laughs> but I mean, I think it, it, you know, like you asked about Nant, I think the reason why they pull from everything is because as a neonatal therapist, I mean, yeah, while I'm working on feeding, I'm also working on, you know, potentially positioning or I'm, I'm looking at tone changes. I'm looking at, okay, this tightness is happening here. And is that coinciding with their desatting and their swallowing? So like, there's a lot that that can tell me or their state regulation. Um, so, I mean, we are looking at a lot of that neuromotor development um, in the context of feeding. So, so I think that's, that's why it's nice that they're pulling from all of their telling us we need to know all of it so yeah yeah that makes sense okay um so what's next what what every rehab manager needs to know about (laughs) OTPP and speech um yeah so Nant like the the Nant website has a lot of just really neat like just blogs and articles and um it's really built it's built by therapists to really help um support other therapists to get buy-in from their their leadership or really understand that this is a specialty um and so I was reading that recently. I had read it a long time ago and then it happened to pop up again. 
but I think in there, like I, you'll see in the show notes, but it does talk specifically about how, um, like all of the different national organizations across our disciplines, but then also the AAP, the American Association of Pediatrics, um, does make the distinction between pediatric versus neonatal therapy uh, from an expertise um, standpoint. So I think that's just, again, just a validation of you, you do need to have advanced, whether that's you're using this to advocate to get more, more training from your managers or the fact that, uh, okay, you can't just be thrown in and expect to do it all. Because there are facilities where adult therapists are floating into the NICU or, right. or all of a sudden being asked to do an MBS or things like that. So, um, so that was just, just kind of a fun article and a lot of like, yep, yep, yep. And <laughs> validation moments, but, um, it does empower people, I think, to present that up. Yeah. Well, and I think like what you said too, um, you know, what you said before is they're not hooked up to tubes and, mm-hmm. and things like that. You know, yeah. I mean, in the NICU, it, it, some of these little creatures are totally touch and go, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely. I mean, so if you don't, if you don't know what you're messing with, mm-hmm. you know, if you're yeah. just coming from doing, you know, outpatient feeding therapy and being thrown in this situation with mm-hmm. extremely, extremely fragile lives, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, yeah, or, you know, no, I'm sure ill intent is, you know, Mm-hmm. but it can, it can happen. So, yeah. And I've been asked that question, you know, multiple times in my, um, like my, 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 my NICU career, I guess, um, of, well, you know, do you think like this person is going to do any harm by seeing this baby? And I'm like, it's not just like, nobody really goes in intending right. to harm the baby. I hope not. Right, um, right, right, right. But again, like what you, like, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And I think again, coming back to that parental factor or family factor, they're already on edge. Um, they're already nervous of all the, the leads and the cords and all that. So if you are fumbling with your handling of the baby, I mean, that's just adding to the whole mess. So. Oh, completely. Yeah. I, I know I like freaked out and then every <laughs> single time I moved something or some bell went off or some alarm went mm-hmm. off, you know, but I also, um, to make my story even crazier, my mom was a NICU nurse for 40 years. Oh. So the two of us in the NICU were just not a good combination. <laughs> well, I'm glad <laughs> but, I wasn't there, I guess. <laughs> I oh my God. No, Robbie, I was dying for someone to, to help, you know? Um, but it just, you know, I, I would freak out with every little alarm or something. My mom's like, Oh, that means nothing. That means nothing. And then she's like, Oh, that's okay. I'm like, Oh, my, how do you stuff like but you know you guys know that this ding means this and this ding means that Mm -hmm. and two dings mean not good you know but I mean just as a if you don't have that experience in there you you don't know what is harmful harmless dangerous and I think that's where I mean like you know talking about dings I mean I think I have this at some somewhere in my notes but um I think I mentioned like I was always taught in my mentorship um like when the alarm dings it's almost too late, not too late in like that sense, but you've already missed all the cues the infant's giving you before they have to get to that point where it has to show up on the alarm um, or on the monitors. And so I think that's another kind of point of why you really, you really need to know what you're doing and really be, you know, focused uh, and on point because there are things you can avoid. Um, I think showing up on the monitors is that kind of last um, level of stress that the baby's like, listen to me. Yeah, <laughs> You're yeah, not yeah. hearing or seeing what I'm showing you. And so I have to, I have to go in the, into this level of stress, um, yeah. which if we can avoid that, that's, we're helping that brain develop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. How, um, how old was your kiddo when he was in the NICU? 
Um, so he was, he was 20, no, oh my God, no, he was 38 weeks. Okay. Um, but he, I was going to say 28 weeks and 15 days. <laughs> no, no, 38 okay. weeks. Golly. Um, it was just, it was horrible. He was there for 15 days and all they just kept saying was he'll figure it out. He'll figure yeah. it out. He'll figure it out. And I'm like, someone has to know something other than he'll figure it out, mm-hmm. you know? So that was yeah. just what was so, yeah. Well, and then if it's like, if that's the case, right, then why don't they just go home and figure it out? Is- Well, so what ended up happening was, you know, my, you know, as much as I know about feeding tubes and my mom, you know, being a NICU nurse Mm -hmm. too, she's like, they're just, they just keep pumping him, pumping him with the gavage, with the NG tube. Mm -hmm. They're not giving him a chance to try anything. So finally I said to the neonatologist, can we just pull the NG, Mm -hmm. see how he does. If he does bad, we put it back Mm -hmm. in. If he does fine, I take him home. Mm -hmm. And she's like, yeah, we pulled the NG. He drank all of his bottles for the day and we got to take him home Mm -hmm. the next day. Yep. It was like, why couldn't we have done this 10 days mm-hmm. ago? Like, <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, yeah. Hear ya. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So let's get back on, back on task here. Okay. okay. Um, so I guess, you know, you kind of talked about what, you know, that starting in an outpatient is a really good, you know, place to start. Is there, do you have more you want to go into in that or? Yeah. I mean, I think, so one thing that I have been fortunate to get, and I kind of keep pushing um, either students or CFYs, is to really also learn from our PT and OT colleagues. Um, they know so much, like about just muscle and tone and all that, that we don't necessarily get that knowledge base um, as much, um, or if if even. So I think that really helped as well. I had some amazing PTOT mentors. So finding that um, everything from how even just handling a baby, they, they have much more coursework in that um, to, okay, you know, he's, this baby's tensing here. And what does that mean? And if I hold this way, do they do this? Or, you know, head, head preference, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's a huge piece of it. Um, and then sensory regulation from our OT colleagues. Um, I think more and more um, with how our culture is changing, um, having a knowledge base of breastfeeding, I think is huge. Uh, more and more moms do want to breastfeed. And not that we have to be lactation consultants because most NICUs have that, but uh, being able to have that knowledge base so we can support it and not necessarily just push the bottle if that's the case, but knowing that oral motor function um, is I think a good place. So like right now in our NICU, for example, our um, IBCLC or our lactation consultant is um, away on surgery. And so many of us are kind of filling in, trying to help these moms. And I just feel like if I didn't have that coursework or background, I would be lost. Um, yeah. So I think that's definitely important. I was kind of pleasantly surprised at how much kind of SLP and lactation consultant mm-hmm. really overlapped. Yeah, and absolutely. That was one thing that, you know, when my son was in the NICU, they they were so good about encouraging, you know, he didn't, he didn't end up latching, but just keeping me pumping, keeping mm-hmm. me pumping and encouraging me to keep mm-hmm. doing that. And so I ended up pumping, I pumped for an entire year for him, but awesome. I, I was just so impressed with the lactation consultant and, you know, kind of her knowledge base mm-hmm. of feeding and swallowing too. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of, this is cool. Yeah. I mean, it can be a really beautiful just relationship yeah. and there's yeah. place for both. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah, I truly appreciate the collaboration that I have with, um, our lactation consultant and yeah. vice versa. Like she, she will tell parents like, oh, you know, like I'll make sure speech, you know, comes in or the opposite where I'm recommending her, um, and really working in tandem or, you know, or things like, you know, tongue tie, high palate, like we're definitely updating each other. So we know what we're going into and 
the poor mom doesn't have to share her story over and over again. <laughs> you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a, yeah. a blessing to not have to do. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> um, another place to gain, <clears throat> I think knowledge base is, um, so at the, so the NANT website itself, the neonatal therapy, um, that you can become a member and they have a lot of, um, I think it's monthly, if I remember correctly, they have special topic calls, um, that are specific to neonatal therapy. Um, and they always have an expert that's doing basically a call. You can either join it in the moment or they have recordings of it. Um, which is a nice place to learn more. Um, and then they actually have launched maybe a couple of years ago now, they have a, uh, mentorship program. It's called Ignite. Um, and it's designed for either neonatal therapists that are like, they're just by themselves or one person in their unit and they want support or people that are kind of starting out and want more, uh, mentorship and training. So that might be, I mean, it's, it's a little pricey, but I think it's a great resource and a valuable resource. So if someone's really interested, um, especially if they're kind of an island on their own, that yeah. would be a good place. Um, Dr. Brown um, has a ton of um, neonatal-based um, and feeding-based webinars that are free in NARA Health. So there's like a ton of places um, out there, and I, I'll make sure that I um, include them in the in the show notes as well. Oh, great. Okay. Um, Thanks, so I think there are definitely a lot of places to get the knowledge base, and then it just becomes how to apply it because um, we can read and read and read, but... Um, actually being able to build a skill is the other part of it. And I think that's where mentorship, having the clinical setting to work, to try that in is key. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, I know this is something near and dear to my, my heart too. <laughs> the most important thing that SLPs and the NICU should know about. Yep. Um, so feeding is probably the number one um, discharge criteria. Yeah, uh, the- that was the one and only for my <laughs> yeah, son. The if of course, of course. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's basically we need temperature regulation. Um, I think it's like neuromuscular, you know, stuff, and then feeding, <laughs> like yeah. the three, the three big things. Um, so I always say the most important thing is um, what we call cue-based feeding or infant-driven feeding or infant-led feeding. There's different terms depending on um, which article you read or which philosophy, but it's essentially the same. Um, we're basically letting the infant or the, the person who is feeding, essentially is swallowing, lead the path. Um, and so I kind of say it's, it's, it's like adults. I mean, if you, if you went into an adult room or even ourselves and we didn't feel like eating, if we were like exhausted one day or like, you know, stuffy or can't breathe, you're not going to just shove food in their mouth and say, swallow, 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 swallow. Um, so why are we doing that to a little itty bitty infant? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. you know, so, so just kind of keeping, I think that mindset, um, and I just want to mention that this week in the MedSLP solution, we are covering infant driven feedings and cue based feeding. So if you're interested in learning more about peds or just looking for a supportive community full of resources, handouts, videos, uh, tons of mentors in various different settings and with various different specialties, consider joining us at MedSLPSolution.com. So the, the biggest thing with cue-based feeding and infant-driven infant feeding is letting the infant lead the path. Um, they are the ones kind of calling the shots. Um, and a lot of that is then really paying attention to the infant. Um, whether, so there's, there's the most subtle thing. Yes, they can't talk to us and they can't tell us that this hurts or this is hard to swallow, but you can tell from their expressions, their um, change in breathing, sometimes their muscle tone. Um, so when I'm working with parents too, I'm kind of pointing that out or kind of talking through like, oh, look, they raised their eyebrow. 
um, over here where they kind of open their eyes all of a sudden like a startle, kind of like that, whoa, moment, this is too fast. Or they purse their lips and they're not letting the bottle in. So again, if an adult sat there and just pursed their lips and didn't want to open their mouth, we wouldn't just try to shove things in there. Right, right. Um, so why are we doing these to these infants? So keeping those kind of concepts in mind. Um, and I think if we remember that everything we do um, from touch to diaper change to whatever it is, and then more importantly, feeding is really mapping the brain. Everything these uh, infants are learning is teaching their brain about the environment um, and what the future looks like. So we're kind of setting that pathway for future feeding um, success. Um, and I saw this a lot when I was in outpatient, when I would see some of the toddlers or even school-agers with feeding difficulties and you trace back their history and many of them were NICU grads or had reflux and all these just negative early feeding experiences. Um, it teaches you a lot um, about that. So, so I think that's been, for me, definitely a guiding philosophy. Um, and I, tell, I always kind of explain it to parents is um, it's like training for a marathon. So you could wake up one day and kind of just go run a marathon or a 5k, which I've done. And then you come back and you're exhausted and <laughs> I've never done it again. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, or you could kind of wake up every morning, train a little bit, you know, one day you might take a break and you may not work out. You may not do anything, which would, you know, maybe be the day that an infant's getting a gavage feed, for example, because they're exhausted. So kind of equating it with that. And the next day you might have more energy to actually do more. Um, so it is, it is very much like endurance building or like training for um, an athletic event. Um, it is, it's, it's all muscles um, and, and energy and breathing. So I feel like when I talk to parents that way, they seem to get it a little bit more. Um, because obviously it's the stress of, um, you know, just getting the volumes in for discharge. Everybody in the NICU environment is asking you how much they fed or is reporting in percentages of intake or how many ounces were taken in and not many people are really asking but how did they do that um so kind of kind of um I feel like as speech pathologists we are champions of that culture change um of the volume driven culture and so playing that part is key yeah yeah I mean I definitely from you know my being a NICU mom Mm -hmm. the it, it definitely was volume driven which you know, just to get my son out of there, it's like, oh, great, great. He has to drink this much, you Mm -hmm. know, per Mm -hmm. meal and then we could take him home. Oh, great. I'm so glad he drank that much. But we did have this one nurse that she worked nights Mm -hmm. and she just, oh my God, she loved him. She was wonderful. And of course, you know, you can't sleep when you're going through this stuff, Mm -hmm. like you're home and your baby's not home with you. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. It's gut wrenching. So I I literally was just up pumping all night, reading every Catherine Shakir article I could. (laughs) And, um, but I would call, you know, cause he'd have his feedings at 12, he'd have his feedings at three, he'd have his feedings mm-hmm. at six. So I'd call her and sometimes, you know, she'd say, Oh honey, you know, he only had, he only drank 20 cc's tonight, but I really liked the way he ate tonight. Right. And you know, she's like, his cues were really good and he was good and satisfied. And then we put the bottle away because he showed me he was done. And it, it kind of like, I was like, shucks, I wish he would have drank more, but I had so much more respect for her the way that she took the time and and cared and, you know, really wanted to make sure that, you know, like you said, that neurologically that, Mm -hmm. you know, he was doing the right thing. So. Yeah. And I think that lays the, the, the foundation for the parent feeding as well. Right. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I can go in and I can use all these philosophies and cue based and, you know, know what I'm looking for and provide hopefully a positive feeding experience, but I'm not feeding this infant like every feed even, or once they get home. So, 
um, it's, it's really hard and impossible and unfair to expect the parent to follow all of that if the culture in the NICU doesn't support that. Right. Um, cause yeah, I mean, it, it happens to probably all of us that work in the NICU where we'll have all this, this whole plan in place and we feel like we're on the same page and we'll come back the next day. And then the parents like, Oh yeah, like I had so-and-so nurse or so-and-so mom next door said, switch to this faster flow nipple or like, Oh, twist this nipple yes. this way and they'll take more or unswaddle them. Yeah. <laughs> they do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and everybody means well, but, um, there are long-term consequences to that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, when, when you and I were discussing, like even just topics and stuff, you know, how I was telling you my, my passion for just development, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which if anybody from my unit ever listens to this, they will totally agree. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, you know, like, like we all, like most, most of us start at that cue based feeding, right. And we kind of get that concept and that's drilled in us and, um, we're all familiar with Catherine Shaker's work and Aaron Ross and all that, but um, we have to, I feel like just like we think ahead of what is this going to mean for discharge or like post-discharge, how are these kids doing? Um, we have to also think about what are we doing in the early stages before feeding starts at that kind of 33, 34 week kind of um, age range. What are we doing to build, build like positive pre-feeding skills, we call it, or positive oral experiences um, and then also just just good palate and mouth formation um, for sucking and swallowing and breathing. Um, so that's something that um, I, I mean, it's kind of fallen in my lap for some reason. It keeps, it kept coming up for me and I've done more coursework. Um, I did take the um, orofacial myology coursework. Oh, you did? Um, yeah. So I'm kind of in the, I guess, certification process for that. Oh, and, it's, cool. and it's a 28 hour course that I think I... I look at the mouth completely differently after. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. And I know you had Diane Barr, you know, on the podcast and um, I've communicated with her as well and have um, done some of her coursework and read her book and all that. And same thing, like she's also very passionate about just oral development. um, And that has been, I think, a great foundation. But also I love that she's continuing to update her work and present. So we're not just kind of forgetting about it, but ongoing with um, things that are changing. So some things that we have talked about a lot on our unit um, is, so we, we do have quite a bit of focus on what's called pre-feeding. Um, so we're not just waiting until that kind of, you know, 34, 33 week mark where we're like, okay, time to feed. They've hit this magic number, um, but they haven't had any experience leading up to it. Um, so we are doing things like um, just positive oral care. Um, and we've, we've done a lot of education um, one of my colleagues who was in the NICU uh, before me, um, she did a lot of work as well with um, how even all of these OG tubes are being taped. Um, so the typical practice uh, in most NICUs is to kind of tape, tape down to the chin. So the OG is kind of resting on the tongue or along the palate, and then the taping is done on your chin, which if you can kind of Imagine that's going to result in your mouth staying open for these infants. They are constantly wanting to thrust their tongue because we our, our, our natural reflex is to push something out of our tongue and close it to be able to breathe. Um, infants are nasal breathers, um, obligate nasal breathers, so they don't, they don't need to have their mouth open to breathe. Um, so we're kind of creating a lot of these maladaptive tongue thrust patterns almost because all they're doing is continually trying to push something out of their mouth or their, their open mouth breathing, which is then changing, um, again, palate shape, all those things. Um, 
pacifiers. Um, so we obviously use them in the NICU and there's definitely a place for them, but we use different sizes in our NICU and most NICUs, there's a preemie size and then a term pacifier. Um, and many times I'll see, you know, like a kid still has their OG tube and then they have the little pacifier and there's like either or no room in their mouth, or it's just like there's too much room in their mouth, and they're not getting upgraded to the right pacifier size for their mouth shape consistently. So we've been trying to kind of target that uh, more and more, both with nursing education as well as um, speech trying to go in earlier than that 34, 33, um, even like the 30-week mark to make those changes. And it's been really neat um, to actually feel these palettes and see how they're changing. So I feel like now I can put my finger on a palette, and I totally know like if this kid has had an OG tube or like a preemie pacifier, it literally is forming that shape. Oh, wow. Or if they had, you know, taping down to the side and the, the OG tube was, um, was not kind of pushing against it. Um, and so they were able to form a nice um, round kind of rainbow shaped palette. Um, so, so that's some stuff we're talking about. And along with that too, we're just, you know, even just taping. Um, it's a pretty noxious stimuli to our face. And we're, yeah. we're taping down all of those facial muscles. And so then when it comes to feeding, these are all muscles that these kids have probably never recruited or been able to use because they're just taped down. Um, so how can we do things like, um, so, I do, so I, I do quite a bit of orofacial massage um, or input um, in a way that's appropriate, obviously, for the NICU um, kiddos. And really just, um, again, um, Diane talked about sucking pads and buckle tone and you know, all of that. So really working on that um, so that they are ready for more suction and compression when breast or bottle goes in their mouth. Um, we're doing like, so oral care looks really different too. Even from the pediatric floors, it looks really different. Um, so I know like that document I send you, which was something that we created for our nursing staff. We have that big pink swab or the green swab. And there's a big like, no, don't use this. Yeah. Um, Because can you imagine just like sticking that in a little like 28, 30 week mouth? No, (laughs) no, no. I know. And how just like noxious that could be for that kiddo and why then they're gagging or they have oral aversion. So um, we have these um, little foam tipped, um, a company called Natus makes these little swabs. And so a lot of, again, just gentle, we're just, you know, providing breast milk if we can, um, or early dips of formula, just starting with the lips and really, again, infant driven and cue based um, to see if they're willing to accept these little tastes and making it positive. The oral care in the NICU is really, um, it's kind of seen as like, can we give them something that's positive because they have all these tubes and things around them, whether that's breathing stuff, respiration, NG tube. OG tubes, you know, constant changing, billy lights, all kinds of stuff. Um, So can we provide some stimulation to the mouth or the face that's actually positive? For some of these kids, it might look like literally just gloved finger, you know, dips on their their lips and others can do some of the oral care and moving on to pacifiers. Um, And then we've been doing also... um, which I think is, is becoming more common practice in, in most NICUs that at least I have, I have connected with. Um, so when, we, when I start feeding these kids, when I'm doing my assessment, often what I'm trying first is while they have a pacifier in their mouth, um, I'm, I'm presenting small drops like through um, like a one cc syringe. I'm probably doing like 0.1 cc or less of just little drops by the side of the pacifier. Um, so it's kind of lateral. It goes into their cheek first. They have time to swallow to even see if they're going to accept what they have to swallow and how that transition from suck and breathe to suck, swallow, breathe um, is happening. Or is this really like I have, you know, some infants even now where 
yeah, they're 34, 35, 36 weeks, but because of their medical status that they've gone through, just even that little drop is so um, overstimulating for them that they desat or they're not able to coordinate um, their swallows. So we're like, okay, let's backtrack and kind of build from there. Um, and then we'll move from that to just an open nipple. So without the bottle. So the nipple is kind of like the pacifier. And then we're delivering the drops through the nipple. So it's more central um, to see, okay, now can they coordinate that? And sometimes we'll have to use different flow rates for that purpose and then building from there. So um, our NICU has been really supportive with their feet eating orders. Um, and so our um, nurse practitioners and our neonatologists are pretty good about if I'm like, hey, you know, can we put an order in for, you know, drops with a pacifier up to five cc's max? Um, they've been really good about that. And so we've kind of been using, we've kind of been capping volume, so to speak. So I'd rather um, a child or a baby get, say, experience every time they wake up and are queuing for like, 10 or 15 cc's versus like, oh, they took 45 one session and then they slept through their like the, the next like three. Um, so, so, I mean, kind of just, I guess, customizing it um, with that. So that's kind of, I guess, what I talk about when it's kind of think back to what, what can we do leading up to the actual cue-based feeding um, versus just getting to that point and then, okay, now what, so... Cool. I don't know if that I... Yeah, no, that that's awesome. Or... Oh my gosh. No, no, that's <laughs> wonderful. That, I mean, to, to me, I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking back to, you know, my son's whole experience and that makes so much sense, mm-hmm. you know, so it was kind of just like we were throwing everything at yeah. him to see what stuck, you know, and it makes mm-hmm. sense to have a little more of a methodical mm-hmm. approach like that. So, yeah. And we've been trying to, like, if we make um, a change in the nipple flow rate for some reason, um, you know, we've been trying at least like if we can, to give, give the infant maybe about th- like at least two days or so with it, or maybe even three to kind of really see, because there is again, a lot of neuromotor just mapping that's happening. Um, so if we're like kind of changing a nipple and then like a day later, somebody else changed it to like a different flow or went back and forth. I mean, there's a lot of confusion happening there um, and not really truly giving them experience. Um, so just trying to kind of be consistent with that um, approach. A lot of these kids do, are pretty, I mean, not a lot, all of them are pretty high risk for sensory integration stuff in in the future and just aversion. So trying to minimize that as much as possible. I think that was something that was like my biggest fear too. And of of course my kid like loves anything sensory now, like anything that's like, he's, he's like hyper sensory. I don't don't know what the word is, but he like loves all sorts of textures and everything. I'm like, okay, well, I'm glad that we escaped that. The sensory seeker. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I'm like, I'm glad we escaped. Yeah. That aversion. So. Yeah. And I think again, you know, going back to like the very beginning of when we started the, this podcast, um, I, I feel like because I came from outpatient where I saw NICU grads and that kind of long-term impact, like my mindset is very much how much can I do here or what can I do here um, to where like when these kids get to the point of discharge, like they may not even need outpatient follow-up because we've done enough of a good job. You know, and, and it's not just up to me, it's the whole team. Right. Um, but I feel like that's really shaped my mindset of I'm, I'm preparing these kids for like the world outside of here. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I'm, and that's a huge role um, that I'm, I'm blessed I'm able to play, but um, it can be, it can be a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that was one thing that the neonatologist said, you know, I was like, why can't we just go home and I'll bring him back for 
outpatient therapy. And she's like, do you really want to do that? Like it it was the middle of January, you know, I live Mm -hmm. in Buffalo. She's like, do you really want to drag a newborn baby all the way back downtown every day for therapy? No, like Mm -hmm. let him just learn while he's here and go fine. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah. So, I mean, we didn't, we didn't, he graduated and we haven't had to go back, but um, he's two now and I'm I'm noticing some things now, but I am so grateful that we did kind of stick it out and 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 learn so yeah yeah I mean I can obviously like I'm not a parent so I can't speak from that perspective but um I mean yeah I I see you know just what the parents are going through and I'm sure you've witnessed enough yeah I'm sure you've witnessed enough horribly hormonal yeah absolutely (laughs) but it's you know it's it's definitely um it's definitely validating when you know like we we've had several parents that they're just like verbalizing their gratitude at the end of the journey or you know talking about how much they learned and as hard as it was to like I think the hardest is those last like couple weeks where you see the light at the end of the tunnel right right but it's not there and it's like okay get the car seat do this do that like have a plan oh they didn't eat what they need today (laughs) exactly what it was yeah whatever yeah Um, so I think again just you know I feel I feel honored and I feel blessed that I have a role to play in supporting those families. Yeah, and, totally. Um, it's definitely know, an experience I'll never, ever forget. So mm, yeah. I bet. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, Rami, this is so good. Um, well, so let me ask you, so you just got back from the Baylor course. How was that? Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, it was excellent. It was yeah. so good. Um, so, so I went to the first, um, as far as I know, the first neonatal fees course. That's awesome. Um, so it was kind of cool to be, I guess, part of the inaugural yeah, yeah. graduating class, for lack of better words. Yeah. Um, and so it was at uh, Baylor um, Hospital in Dallas. Um, and they have been doing, um, for a couple of years now, I think, um, they've been doing fees in the NICU and presenting about it. And there've been some articles and things. Um, it was awesome. So it kind of almost felt, so I've been to the, like the NANT conferences, um, which is huge, but it kind of, you have the sense of belonging because everybody's a neonatal therapist and, you know, everybody gets what you're talking about and all that. And I felt like I kept saying this, this course felt like almost an even smaller, like cozy mini NANT. Cause there was about 50 people. Um, and just, and, and there were people across disciplines, including nurses, and different therapists. Um, so the first whole day, we did a lot of review of just neonatal principles. Um, so it was kind of nice to be on the same page. And I kind of that whole day, I was like, you know, it's so cool that at least like 50 of us in this one room are on the same page across yeah. the country and yeah. are hearing all of the same stuff, even though even if some of it's repetition, you know, you always learn something new at every level of your practice. Um, and then we really went into um, the role for fees, you know, um, like when you can use it, all of that. Um, it's really neat because at this point in time, if we're doing modified barium swallows, we're, we're really missing out on that breastfeeding population, especially. Yeah, yeah. So for me, that was one of the big reasons. Um, I, I love modified barium swallows. Like I could probably just do those all day long and yeah. be totally fine. <laughs> uh, but again, because, because I'm, and I'm really looking at why something's happening, um, but at the same time, I would get all these like outpatient referrals for kids that are breastfeeding. And I'm like, this is not at all realistic for them. Um, so it, so it, it was really neat to be able to kind of look into that. Um, my head is just like spinning with all the things I'm sure I want to get done in our unit and kind of yeah. where to begin. Um, I think the hardest part, um, 
like for, for me in my setting is we don't have a pediatric ENT um, at my hospital. Um, and so kind of starting out there to even find someone that will supervise my scope passes and things. Um, I've been slowly working on getting my adult competencies um, done. So I've, so I've done the adult fees, like coursework and working. We have a pretty robust adult fees program at my hospital. Um, so I'm thankful for that support, uh, but trying to figure out how to then take that into the neonatal world. Yeah. Um, and then the last day we had, um, so there's like different breakout sessions that we could, we kind of picked ahead of time. And so one of them was just all these different case studies. So a lot of like interpretation um, experience, which was great. Um, and then they had uh, what they called a simulation lab. So obviously we didn't have real babies to scope, um, yeah. which would have been the icing on the cake. Yeah. <laughs> but um, they had a baby model um, that we were able to scope. Um, so that was kind of nice just to get that experience. But the way they they had us do it, it really played out. Uh, it, was, it was almost like a role play, I guess, um, of how it would look like on your unit and how many people it might involve. So there's, you know, one person feeding, there's one person scoping, there's a person like maybe handing over like bottle changes or, you know, positioning, um, the nurse is watching the monitor. So there's just, it's really just a whole team that's working on it. Um, and just kind of, it was still driving through that like whole philosophy of how everybody needs to both be on the same page, be working together, but really have that knowledge base of, again, everything we're doing is making a difference. So they were saying they have, I mean, they have a lot of data they want to kind of comb through and, you know, more research stuff, but they were saying, so one of the occupational therapists who was presenting was talking about how like, like she would be the feeder and then the speech pathologist is scoping and the occupational therapist would kind of call out like, you know, neck, neck tension or something like, you know, change in tone. And at this, same time, the speech pathologist was calling out penetration or aspiration. Um, and so they want to go back and look at just more oh, of that. how cool. Yeah. Um, and type that type of stuff. So yeah, it was, it was really neat. I think. That's awesome. Yeah. We all kind of left obviously with like, we want to do this tomorrow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but I think it's, it, they said, you know, they, it's so empowering for the parents as well, I think, to kind of really see what's going on and know and um, kind of go from there. So it was really neat. Let me just do a quick thank you to our sponsor, EndoHD. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. Uh, reach out to them to discuss your specific fee system requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. At Altara Vision, they combine cutting-edge technology with clinician-inspired devices and phenomenal customer service to make the best imaging devices in the country. EndoHD is a compact fee system with a maneuverable design, which provides convenience to do fees in more locations in the hospital, ICU, CCU, PICU, exam room, patient room. So reach out to them at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. I ended up taking my son, I think he maybe was two or three months, um, took him to an ENT and an ENT scoped him. Mm-hmm. And it was... At first it was like horrible because he was just screaming bloody murder and they had him like strapped to a thing and it was, I just was like (laughs) losing it. But then as soon as like the doctor got the scope in place, I was like, oh my God. And I just, he was like, you can, you know, have him do what you want to do. And I just was so fascinated by it. And like, I'm like, why didn't we do this months ago? Like we got so much good information from it and, Mm -hmm. you know, and and then you talk about combining it with breastfeeding too. I think Mm -hmm. that's just incredible. Yeah. I think what was neat too, like, so, you know, one of the things we really struggle with 
I mean, I, probably across across ages, but especially in in the NICU is um, reflex and reflex management. Um, you know, and there's no, I mean, like a lot of things we do aren't truly evidence based, but like clinically we see a difference. Um, but it was neat because some of the case studies we watched too. I mean, you could see the reflex happening, um, and or you could see just you know the irritation, um, all of that stuff. And so I think that was really nice as just another another tool to kind of validate what's happening from that aspect. So I was kind of thinking about that as well, because it's just a constant struggle of like, okay, they're reflexing, they're reflexing. It's like, well, every infant reflexes. It's like, yeah, but this one more than that one. And and what are we setting them up for? And we're not going to, we rarely use medications and, you know, we're trying all these different things. Um, Yeah. So that was really neat. Um, And then they did also present, they they had a little quality, um, a QI project at Baylor, um, to figure out like thickening in the NICU and what their, what their practices are and what's actually happening when they're thickening liquids. Um, so one of the therapists presented on that. They presented that at ASHA actually, um, this past ASHA as well, one of those technical sessions. Um, and then using the IDSI model at bedside um, to figure that stuff out. So that was, that was interesting. Our, our NICU, our policies, we don't thicken. Um, we will maybe fortify the formula versus yeah. with an external agent or we're trying all these different strategies. Um, but it was, yeah, it was neat to see that part as well. So yeah. Yeah. Was really I think I was kind of, yeah, that's awesome. I think I was kind of in denial with my son cause I was like, Oh, he doesn't need thickener. He doesn't need thickener, but they were fortifying my breast milk just cause he mm-hmm. was underweight anyways. And I'm like, okay, Teresa, if you look at this, this really is like nectar right. thick, you know? <laughs> So, you know, but I was okay with it that way. You know, mm-hmm. it was like, I guess I was okay that my baby didn't need to be on thickened liquids, but mm-hmm. it, it, it was thicker with the, yeah. 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 I'm, I'm actually like thinking a lot about, you know, it's in general too, just at bedside, because even with breast milk, like every, every mom's breast milk is such a different level of thickness. Yeah. Um, you know, and then the formula and then, okay, yeah. if they're on spit up formula and all these things. So right. um, yeah, that's the next thing kind of, I'm hoping to bring to our NICU. So. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. So I'm going to throw a question at you and I, do, I definitely didn't give you any warning about this, but <laughs> do you, I guess, cause I think of some of these hospitals that have these, I mean, even level four NICUs and they don't have SLPs working in them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I know you can't build room in a day, but I, I feel like we have so many SLPs that want to get into the NICU and we have so many NICUs that don't have SLPs. I guess, is there a way to, I mean, approach a, a rehab director? I mean, how, do you, do you even know how to build an SLP program at, at a hospital or? Mm-hmm. Um, so fortunate, for, fortunately for me, I came in because I came in to work that was already like done by other people ahead of me. But, um, one of the people that did a lot of work in our NICU, um, was actually my CFY mentor, um, and we're still pretty good friends. So I kind of have a little bit of that background. I don't know every struggle she went through, but, um, but I think what I also kind of hear and gather is from other friends who've had been this position. Um, you know, the first part is that training. I think there's, I mean, in multiple areas of our field, like we know, you know, it comes up often on listservs, there isn't the right training ground for a lot of these skill sets. So then it's like, if we don't have the training or the knowledge base. How are we advocating for ourselves to actually be there? So there's that. Um, but I think once we have that and that's, that's set, um, one way is to maybe even try kind of getting into um, the well baby nurseries 
Um, so that's kind of a nice um, kind of entry point sometimes. Because again, these babies are more stable. They may just be there, like short stays, what we, we call them in our hospital, like hypoglycemia, you know, a day or so here or there, not like super major critical. Um, and kind of maybe working that way of like, can we support their feeding? Um, so for sure, you want to have your leadership or, you know, rehab management buy-in. Um, but then I think talking to the nursing managers is sometimes a good, a good place um, and really explaining what we do. I think there is definitely a lack of awareness of what we do. So um, like even in the NICUs that have therapists, I think like a lot of staff just think that, oh, speech is just going to feed them and I can do my charting at that time. And I always try to say, like, I'm not just feeding this baby. There's, like, a lot I'm doing therapeutically. Um, so I think really helping the, the management understand that. Um, if we can, I think if, if, staff, if people can find at least one kind of champion person, whether that's a neonatologist that's maybe been at a different facility where they had therapy and knows what that means, or a nurse practitioner that's coming um, from a training program, um, or I think even just nurses, that may be kind of a good place to start. Um, and then, yeah, I think, I think step-down units, postpartum, those are great places again, and also to get kind of that normal development type stuff, um, and then slowly getting in. I, I feel like a lot of SLPs have gotten into the NICU because it started off as a, um, I guess, consultation model, so to speak. Like, they would have this one baby, maybe term baby, that had, you know, a syndrome or a cleft palate or something, and all of a sudden, they're trying to find speech, but that may be your entry point. Um, and kind of building from there, this is everything else we can do. We've actually kind of had to do that on some of our general peds floors in our hospital of here are all of the things we can do. <clears throat> you don't have to consult us only because you think someone's aspirating um, or not taking their feeds. So, cool. so I don't know if that fully yeah, answered. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I mean, that's some great, you got to start somewhere. So yeah, I think you just advice. have to find really that one person and there usually is at least one. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. All right. Um, research, Ramia, do you have a, is there a paper or a research article or anything like that that has really kind of shaped the way you practice any Catherine Shaker goods? Or... <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, know there's, Catherine I know there's Shaker. more people than just her, but she was like the one person that I read the entire time yeah. my little man was in the NICU. So well, I yeah. think especially like in our field, you know, she's a speech pathologist as yeah. well. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think if you ask most, if not all, NICU speech pathologists, so we will definitely like say Catherine yeah. Shaker. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think in my, when I was writing to you, I, I called it like my practice shaping versus practice changing <clears throat> because, because of the timing that it was for me. Like that was, like I was reading and learning all of that stuff before. So I feel like it really shaped how I entered the NICU, um, thankfully, versus having to go in doing something else and then be like, oh, great, I was doing it wrong. The whole yeah, time. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, and her, her stuff is so easy to read. Like, right, right. Even I, her research just feels like it's like a blog post or just right. you know, an article or whatever. So, um, so yeah, I have, I included one I know in my show notes. I'll maybe send you a few more. Okay. Um, but the big one is um, Q based feeding in the NICU um, using the infant's communication as a guide. Um, and then she has done a few articles for the ASHA Leader. Um, reading the feeding is one that's most popular. Um, and again, really, it's, it talks about that cue-based feeding. Um, that, so those are definitely good places to start. Erin um, Ross um, is another um, therapist that has, so she created um, what's called a SOFI model. SOFI is the acronym S-O-F-F-I, Supporting Oral Feeding in the Fragile Infant, I believe is 
uh, acronym. <clears throat> and so, um, so she's a great presenter as well. And it kind of has this whole um, kind of like a flow chart model of like, which uh, a lot of hospitals have used for nursing training as well of if they're doing this, you do this. And if they're not doing this and you go there and it, it, it looks again, a lot of the cues. Um, and then when you should be looking at changing the flow of the nipple, when should you think about adding additional support, like cheek or chin support um, and what should you see or not see? So that's definitely, um, um, so she, she, she does the actual like full Sophie training, which I think is two or three days long, but she also has a lot of just um, adjunct kind of presentations and um, things. So, so those are definitely two great resources. Um, Kara Ann Weitzman and Sue Ludwig are both occupational therapists. Um, and they co-created uh, what's called the infant driven feeding skills, <clears throat> um, which again is a way to like track the feeding, look at the cues. Um, a lot of our, like our documentation, uh, we use Cerner, our Cerner documentation templates actually use the IDF, infant-driven feeding scales, um, to kind of, um, kind of chart how kids are doing. Um, so it's beyond just the volume. So those are all great resources. Um, I think the other one I added in there um, was, um, I think it's pronounced ALS, but it's the um, synactive model of neonatal behavior organization, which is, again, I think a good starting point of understanding just preterm development and how the environment is impacting the infant. So it talks a lot about um, kind of this whole approach, and I had put that pyramid in there of, um, you know, just the whole hierarchy, I guess, of how we have to have physiological stability, with our you know, respiration rate and heart rate and all that. And then we build motor coordination and then we build our behavior and our sensory stuff. And then we're actually able to interact um, and how all of that, you know, I feel like a good understanding of that um, kind of forms a good foundation of feeding as well. Um, I recently, this is like, I've, it's funny cause I have seen this, this cited a bunch of places, but didn't like think about it, but um, I'll send you the name of this, but this is a book that, I don't know if you can see it. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. But, um, so it's called Developmental and Therapeutic Interventions in the NICU. Um, and it's by Elsie Vergara and Rosemary Bigsby. And they're cited in a lot of articles. Um, but I borrowed this from a former OT colleague. Um, and it's been really neat reading. Um, with a, just, it's, again, just very easy to read and understand. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's tons and tons of I don't even know where to be. I feel like I read one thing and then there's 50 other things in, in the citations. Yeah, but, um, yeah. Hopefully that's a good start at least again. I think that's a great start, we'll Romeo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Is there anything else you want to No, add? I feel like I'm rambling with all my No, games. oh my gosh, this is wonderful. <laughs> this is so good. And in my next life, I'm going to be a NICU SLP. So go. yeah, so this will prepare me for that. Oh, so. in my next life, I'll be a endoscopist. There you go. <laughs> Or hopefully in this life. In the yes, <laughs> I know. I know. I have so, so many dreams, but I get, mm -hmm. I'll tackle them as I can. So, yep, absolutely. All right. Oh my God, Ramya, this was so great. Yeah. So. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh right. my goodness. Yeah. Thank you. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.